If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to the letter to the Hebrews. While you're turning there, let me uh, share with you, I've been reading a, a, a new book this, this week. Some of you will be glad that I picked it up, uh, but it's called uh, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Concentrate and How to Think Deeply Again. And he talks about a lot of the research that's going on in terms of the amount of information the human mind can absorb and at what rate. And because we're so flooded with information, it's literally um, trying to like trying to drink from a water hose or a fire hose. And so um, he talked about that. And I thought, well, maybe that applies to preaching as well. You know, you can only absorb so much. So I I did uh, spend uh, some Sunday school time this morning actually. Um, backing some things up because it was actually my intention to uh, cover all of the second chapter. And then I realized uh, that is sort of like a fire hose. And so we are not going to do that. We're going to simply, I believe, um, well, in theory, we're going to cover chapter two of Hebrews and we're going to get through the first four, four verses instead. So... Um, as we've gone through the book of Hebrews and the first chapter, we talked about how the message of the writer of Hebrews was that Christ is better. And he talked about how Christ is better. He's a better messenger. He's better than the forefathers. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angelic hosts. And last uh, time I was with you, uh, we talked about the difference between Christ and the angelic hosts and why he is better. And then we come to verse or chapter two. He, he begins with a warning and he warns us about something that is so endemic in the Christian life that it warrants some thought. And so he begins to tell us he gives us this warning about drifting away and warning labels come in many ways. And in many, uh, many cases, they they're sort of um, well, they just don't make a lot of sense. This one makes perfect sense, but um, I looked up warning labels on the internet. And some of the, the warning labels that are actually on products might surprise you. Uh, there was one that said, caution, the contents of this bottle should not be fed to fish. And it's a bottle of shampoo for dogs. Uh, it seemed random to me. Uh, for external use only, do not put product near eyes on a curling iron. Hey, uh, do not use in the shower or while sleeping on a hairdryer. <laughs> makes sense, I suppose. Do not place this product into any electronic equipment. It was on a chocolate CD in a gift basket. So in case you tried to play the thing, I suppose. Recycled flush water, unsafe for drinking on a public facility in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, one manufacturer simply just said, before you try it your way, read our instructions. <laughs> Shin pads cannot protect any part of the body they do not cover. One would think that would be obvious. This product is not intended for use as a dental drill on a Dremel tool. Okay. Although it might sound like one, it's not. Caution, do not spray in your eyes on a container of underarm deodorant. This is one of my favorites. Do not drive with sunshield in place. <laughs> on a cardboard sunshield that keeps the sun off the dashboard. Um, 
not intended for highway use, on a 13-inch wheelbarrow tire. And finally, uh, okay, do not use orally on a toilet bowl cleaning brush. So anyway, uh, sometimes you see these warning labels and you think, what? <laughs> who doesn't know this, right? I, I mean, what kind of person? Well, then you, you stop thinking because they put it on there for reasons which tell you, which tells you once upon a time somebody actually probably did this. Uh, it's like the guy that bought, uh, there's a famous court case where the guy bought an RV and it had uh, cruise control. And so he set the cruise control and then got up to make himself a sandwich. And of course, it resulted in an accident. And then he sued the RV company because, uh, you know, it said cruise control. And so he thought the thing would just drive itself. So anyway, sometimes these, these, these things seem so obvious to us, um, that they are funny. Well, today's, uh, warning that we get from the writer Hebrews is obvious. And even though it's obvious, to us, it's anything but funny because it is still something that plagues us. It's still something we find ourselves constantly battling against, and that is this idea that we should drift away. And this is what he says, for this reason, and we'll get to what he means by that in just a moment, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by those who had heard to us. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He begins to ask the question, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to something. The idea, what's the reason? The reason is, in fact, in the ESV version, it says, um, therefore, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to stop and back up for just a second and see what it's there for. And he says, therefore, or because of this, and this is the fact that Christ is better than the prophets. Christ is better than our forefathers. Christ is better than the angelic host. For this reason, or therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. God spoke through the prophets. He spoke through the angels. He spoke through the mediator Moses. But Jesus is better so much so that he says we must pay not just attention to it. We must pay closer attention to it. And we must give it the thought, the uh, intentionality that it deserves. What is it that we are supposed to pay attention to? Because we, we have to be careful that we, we look at this correctly or by the time we get to chapter 4 and then chapter 7 of Hebrews, we'll begin to wonder things like, well, can you fall from grace and can you lose your salvation? So let's look at what we're drifting away from because he doesn't say we're going to drift away from Christ, although we can do that in terms of our obedience and our relationship and fellowship with him. He says that we might drift lest we drift away from it. Well, what is the it? What does that modify? And what it modifies is what we have heard. And so the idea is this. They have been told they have heard something, and that was the gospel, the good news of Christ. Now, one of the reasons that I, I 
do not think that the writer of Hebrews was an apostle is because look at the way he uses the words we and us. And he says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For the words spoken through the angels provided unalterable in every transgression received uh, a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And he says, um, after it was first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. In other words, the us and the we is different than those who heard. Those who heard would be the apostles. And so he received, whoever the writer is, he received from the apostles what he begins to write about. So that's one of the reasons I, I, I don't think an apostle actually wrote the letter. Um, but he, he identifies himself as one of those who had received from those who heard. But he tells them, this is what we need to pay attention to, the gospel, the good news, and the teachings of the apostles. Probably he also had uh, access to many of the letters of Paul. And what he's saying here basically is we need to be sure that we remain true to the doctrine that has been handed to us. We are not free to change the precepts, the principles, and the ideas that have been handed down from those who actually heard when it was first articulated by the Lord, that is Jesus. So you had Jesus pronouncing the gospel and teaching the apostles. The apostles go on to teach others. And the writer of Hebrews is saying we pay close attention to what we have been taught so that we do not drift away from it. Paul has similar words to the Galatian church when he tells them that he is amazed that they are so quickly turning to another gospel, which is really no, no other gospel at all. And he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I again say now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And there are many ways to, to have this subtle drifting away that where we begin to focus on things that are not the things that the Bible particularly focuses on. In fact, if you look at what Paul goes on to say in that letter, he talks about perverting the work of Christ. When you begin to add to the work of Jesus, say, for example, in another testament of Christ and add to the work of Christ through anyone, any human being such as Joseph Smith, you are perverting the gospel and you have drifted away from sound doctrine and teaching. When you begin to talk more about healing than the healer, you're drifting away from focusing on the sound doctrine. When you begin to talk more about your best life now than about laying down your life for Christ, then you are drifting away from sound teaching. And when you talk more about money than you do treasure in heaven, then you're drifting from sound theology, because that is not what the Bible focuses on. All these things that we get caught up in that we hear being taught today uh, are adrift away from sound doctrine. And what does it mean if we're drifting? If you're just drifting along, most people have some idea that although um, I used the phrase the other day in class and apparently drifting has to do with um, 
skidding around a corner or something now in a car or something like that. Yeah, so I'm, you know, think as my uh, professor in seminary once said, words have usages, not meanings, um, because things change. But anyway, we I think we understand, but when you are adrift, you know, just being driven along, pulled or pushed this way or that way, one of the greatest days fishing, never had, never caught a fish. In fact, we didn't really sort of didn't fish. Calvin and I had gone out to Lake Stockton. It was like the only time we went of the seven or whatever it was where the silly motor actually started. Anyway, we we were sitting out on the lake. It was windy and it was rough and I threw the anchor out, but it just wouldn't grab hold very good. So after a while, we started drifting. Before we knew it, we're kind of farther out in the middle of the lake and the waves are getting bigger. And uh, <clears throat> I looked at Calvin, he looked at me and we both sitting in the bottom of the boat just drinking coffee and I uh, said, I really should do something about that. And Calvin said, oh, just let us drift, see where we go. So well, that sounds like a plan. So just hold in the anchor. We'll just drift and see where we go. Well, you, you, we went, as you might expect, to the other side of the lake. You know, we blew all the way across and it took us quite a while. But, you know, we were just drifting along. No, no direction, no power, no anchor, just having great conversation, good theology and, you know, bad coffee. Because Calvin brought it and he liked it without sugar or creamer. But it, it was, it was wonderful time. But you know what I discovered about drifting is drifting is easy. That's why we like it. It's easy. Just just believe what the world says to believe. Just do what the world does. Just act however the world acts. Do what they they want you to do. Think the way the world thinks. And you don't have to put too much effort into that. You just get your just be driven along. Just drift. It's so much easier to just drift along. And yet, there's a great danger in this drift. Because if we allow ourselves to be carried along, as the Bible says, and I feel comfortable saying this, particularly in this passage, because this is where the writer of Hebrews says the same thing. The Bible says somewhere um, that it's, you know, if we're just going to be driven by every whim of doctrine, I think it's in James, he talks about being driven like the reeds, just by every wind of doctrine that comes along. Sure, why not? That's It's just easy. I don't have to think about that. But what does it mean if we're going to resist this tendency that we all have to drift. Because we all have it. Because it takes a certain mentality and it takes a certain effort to not drift. And so we all have this tendency after a while to allow ourselves to be sort of pulled along and pushed along by these ideas that sound good, at least on the surface, and I don't want to think about them too deeply, so I'll just, I'll, I'll go with it, you know. It gives us this warning. We need to resist that drift. Now, how are we going to intentionally uh, resist? Because that's what it implies. If you're not going to drift, it takes some intentionality. All you have to do is drift. To drift is do nothing. But if you're going to not drift, if you're going to stay close in your relationship and fellowship with Christ, you do it by staying with proven, sound, biblical doctrine, then it takes a little bit of effort and it takes some intentionality. 
That's why the writer says we need to pay attention, not just pay attention, but closer attention. Closer than what? Closer than you ever paid attention to uh, the other things that came before Christ because He is superior to the other things that came before Christ. So we need to pay closer attention to the gospel which He proclaims and those who heard Him teach us. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. She's not here, so I'll share with you. I was on the phone yesterday with my sweet daughter, and she said she was going to the school. And um, we were talking on the phone, and next thing I know, she says, why am I at Walmart? I said, sweetie, I, you tell me. I thought you were going to the school. She said, well, I got off on Kansas um, to go to the school, and here I am in the Walmart parking lot. She said, I guess I just kind of got an autopilot there. And you know what? You have to pay attention or else you end up in places you did not intend to go. You have to. <laughs> we have to guard ourselves against this idea that in the Christian faith, all we have to do is sort of just let, you know, everything pull us wherever it will. We have to have some intentionality about that. And. That implies, though, that you have some direction, right? If you're not going to drift, then you must be going somewhere else. And that's a direction. Many people have the idea, and you hear this phrase all the time out in the world, and I think I know what they mean. They're talking about maybe just being sort of happy-go-lucky or just taking life in stride or whatever. But, you know, they just say, well, I'm just going wherever life takes me. If we adopt the attitude as believers that I'm just going to go wherever life takes me, life will steadfastly take you to eternal separation from all that is good and holy and godly. In a place and state, the Bible says, uh, describes in many ways, calls several things, but they include the word hell. That's where life will take you. So we had better decide that the direction we are going to take, is, the, and the question is not uh, where is life going to take me, but where am I going to take my life? James talks about the rudder of a ship being able to steer it, though it's such a small thing, or the bridle in the great horse's mouth will tell it where to go, even though it's such a magnificent and powerful animal, yet it's controlled by, by a small uh, bridle in its mouth. And we ask ourselves, sometimes, or we need to ask ourselves, it's not just where is it taking me, but where is it failing to take me? You know, I mean, if I just got in the car and decided, well, I'm going to be intentional, I'm going to get in the car, and I'm going to drive. Where? If you don't have some direction as to where it is that you're taking life, then you will just go wherever life leads you, and then you've literally, well, you've got, not literally, but you've got the cart before the horse. We have to have some direction especially when it comes to your faith and your salvation. Life will take you into eternal judgment. Christ will take you to glory. But that takes an intentionality. That takes a decision to make a direction or to have a direction. Where's your life taking you? Or better ask, where's your, where are you taking your life? This implies, though, that you have a map. 
you got some kind of map or maybe a good GPS. I was wondering today if, if maybe um, it wouldn't be easier if God was more like a GPS. You know, He would just say, marry this person or take that job or turn left. Yeah, whatever. I mean, just you're going through life and God's like the GPS and may, maybe you could even give him the voice you want like you can some of them now. So he sounds like, a, you know, a sophisticated Irishman or something like that. And so, you know, it, wouldn't it be it'd be so much easier? Would it, though? Because he's given us a map. He's given us a destination. He's given us some direction. All we have to do is read a little bit. But that takes intentionality. So we're backing all these things, building one. We have to be intentional. We have to have a direction. We have to have a destination. But that means we're going to spend time in God's Word. Now, Stephen gave you some great, a great map reading lesson last week, essentially, on how it is you stay in God's Word, how it is you care for, you pay attention to your relationship with Christ as you work it out in your life. Which is why Paul says it this way. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice he didn't say work for your salvation. He's not saying you have to work for it. He is saying now that you have it. In fact, the word really is, implies it was a mining term in the Greek world that they're digging out the ore that is already in the earth. They're not putting it there. So when Paul says work out your salvation, he's not saying work for your salvation. He is saying now that you have salvation, work it out. Let it out of you. Let it have its effect in your life. There are parts of your salvation that affect the way you think, the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you treat other people, the way you do relationships, the way you do your job. There are things that ought to work themselves out in your life because, not for, but because you have salvation. So Paul says, work it out. Well, what, what kinds of things? Well, that's why we have to be in God's Word. If we are not in God's Word, then we will find ourselves drifting because without being in God's Word, we become directionless. We become as though a sincere, a sincere driver without a map. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I confess I'm directionally challenged. Nothing has pleased me more um, technologically in, in the age in which we live than GPS. Um, I, I got lost on the way to work one time. And, uh, well, there was a lane closure ahead. It was busy. I thought, well, I, I know which direction I'm going. It's just like one mile. So I got off uh, one exit early. And then I got turned around. And then I couldn't remember if the sun rises in the east or the west. I had no idea where I was going. So I was about, <laughs> ridiculous, really, because I was close. I, I, as it turns out, I was close. I circled and circled and circled. Finally meandered my way over to uh, the office, but I was about 45 minutes late, and I came in, and the, uh, you know, the boss said, uh, you know, we start about eight around here, <laughs> and I told him, I said, I got lost, <laughs> and he said, let, let me get this straight, you got lost on your way to work, I said, yeah, I did, so well, you, you've worked here for almost like, you know, three months now. How is it you got it? So I told him, oh, sir. Anyway, later that day when it was time to go home, he said, hey, do I need to pin a note to your shirt in case, in case you get lost on the way home? So I'm, I'm directionally child. I love, I love this idea that we have um, something that can just tell us 
where to go. But in the old days, you got the Rand McNally Atlas, right? You had to, you had to actually get the thing out. And if you were, uh, and I don't know, there's probably a sticker on there somewhere. It should be. It says, pull over to the side of the road before reading your map. Um, but I've seen people do otherwise. Uh, you have too, maybe. But anyway, we, we, you have this uh, ability to know where you're going. But before you do that, the GPS is of no help to you if you don't first tell it what? Where you want to go. I mean, you have to decide what do you want? Do you want a close and abiding relationship with Christ? Then this will tell you how to have it. Do you want the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and the presence of God to give you grace and peace? This will tell you how to do that. If you, you have to decide what it is you want and then follow the map of how to get there. And he lays it out for us in his word. If you're going to do that, you not only need intentionality and a destination and a road map, you need power. And I don't know how many of you like me, have experienced those sort of gut-wrenching moments when you're driving down the road and all of a sudden there's nothing. I mean, there's no power. You just start slowing down. You, know, you start stomping on the gas even more. And you, know, you just keep going slower and slower. I remember this This happened. You, you can ask Sydney. Um, God has a great sense of humor. Anyway, um, we had just bought yet another used new Taurus. I mean, it was new to us, but it was a used Taurus. But it was the newer Taurus of the family. We now have, we had two at the time. And uh, I was in an 89 Taurus, and we were, I had taken the other car to Tiffany at her office. And Sydney and I, she was a little, little young lady. We were driving down the highway, and she said something about um, having this car when she turned 16. And, and I said, oh, yes, yeah. this car will still be around when you turn 16. You, you'll be driving this. This old baby will run forever. And exactly when I said that, it just quit. I mean, just quit. I mean, the engine just turned off. And I, I hit the gas. Not, nothing's happening. We just co start coasting down the highway. And so she, she thinks I'm kidding. And she's like, what are you doing? You're making a joke. I'm like, no, I, I didn't do anything. Well, anyway... Um, I pulled over the side road, had to have it towed to a shop, and it was an electrical problem. I can't remember exactly what had happened. They all, something had unhooked, basically, a wire had rusted through. Anyway, uh, you know, it's, you get this feeling that I don't, I can't go anywhere. You have all the information in the world, but if you don't have power to, to get there, that's a problem. So what, what is the power? How do we find this sort of, I don't know what we call it in the spiritual realm, sort of the motivation? How, how do we discipline ourselves to stay in the Word so that we get to where we've decided we want to go by the way that's provided to us? Well, this is, you know, the psalmist said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You know what his power was? The joy of the Lord. Repeatedly, you see in the Psalms this phrase that your law or your word is my delight. Your law is my joy. I delight, I meditate on it day and night. He goes on to say that I've, it's, it's a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. 
and I've hidden its words in my heart that I might not sin against you. That, and the, the thing that happens as we begin to commit ourselves to, to living in a manner worthy of our calling, as Paul says, as we spend time in God's Word, then we find in God's Word joy, and we find in God's Word the delight of our heart, and that motivates us, that gives us the power to do what? Stay in God's Word, to stay walking closely with Christ. Now the problem comes when we begin to disassociate some of those things and we stop doing that. Because if you stop spending time in God's Word, then what happens? We lose our joy. We lose our delight. When you lose your joy, you lose your strength. You lose your power. And then you're not in God's Word, so you lose your way. And then what happens? We begin to drift. And the cycle either works to make us stronger. <laughs> Probably dates, dates me, but when I was writing this little part the other day, I kept thinking of the, the beginning of, you know, the six million dollar man. And he says, we can make him stronger, faster, better than he ever was before. Anyway, uh, but when we spend time in God's word, it makes us stronger. It does make us I don't know about faster. It doesn't help my speed any, but it does make us stronger. When you spend time in God's Word, it's like a cycle that makes you want to spend time in God's Word. The other thing we need, finally, is a deep anchor that will hold fast. The it, again in verse 2, is the it of sound doctrine. We do not want to drift away from it. And he says, if we neglect this great salvation, how will we escape? You know what the answer implied there is? It's really a question that's a statement. And I don't know if, if you've ever experienced, uh, sometimes people will make ask questions that are not questions at all. They're really statements. Um, sometimes somebody says, you know, may say, well, well, how you fill in blank? How uh, stupid, how silly do you think I am? They do not want an answer to that question. I, pro I promise you they do not want an answer to that question because it's not a question, it's a statement, right? Or, you know, just I, men, you've probably figured this out if you've been married for any length of time at all, you have, but for you younger guys uh, that someday might be married, um, or maybe you're young enough to not have been married long enough to realize this, but many times questions are not real questions. Like, do we want to park here? That's not a question. That, that is a statement of, please back out from this place you carefully selected and find a better parking place. You just have to learn to hear these things. Uh, do, do, we, do we really want to go there? Not a question. That is not a question at all. There, there are some things that are posed as questions that are questions. Well, in this passage, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's not really a question. But it's a rhetorical. And the answer is we don't. In other words, the statement is really this. We shall not escape. 
If we neglect such a great salvation as compared to what? As compared to the messages of the angels, as compared to the messages of the prophets, which Paul says in Galatians 3 came through, attested to by the angels, by the angelicos, and given through the mediator Moses. If that was binding, how much more so? And how much greater are the words spoken by the incarnate Lord Himself and the Gospel of Christ. So how do you possibly plan to escape if the law brought forth retribution and had consequences for failures? How much more severe will it be for us if we neglect so great a salvation? What makes it so great? Three things very quickly. Declared by the Lord Himself, He says in verse 3, or verse 4, it was spoken to the Lord, spoken first through the Lord. Secondly, it was attested to them or us by the apostles or those who heard. And then finally, He says, God bore witness to it as well by pouring out the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. You see what? What he's done is he's given us a picture of the magnitude and majesty of your salvation, spoken by the Lord first, conveyed to us by those who have heard, borne witness to by the pouring of the Holy Spirit as God baptizes his church in Acts chapter 2. How then shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, we don't save through Christ. In Him, we have this great salvation. And what a blessing and a wonder it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for well, so many things, Lord. We are blessed beyond measure. And Father, if we pause for even the briefest moment, consider the wonder and magnitude of the things that you've done for us, that you do for us, we are overwhelmed. Lord, we just thank you for your grace and goodness. Thank you for I thank you, Father, that you gave the Son... And Lord Jesus, we thank you. You laid down your life for us. May we be very intentional, Lord, about paying closer attention to this magnificent and great gospel. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.